Let's pray together. Father, indeed, all other ground is sinking sand. And we don't want to fall. We want to stand firm. Father, there are temptations before us this week and even today. And we want to stand. So, Lord, would you use this word to make your people stand, to flee from evil, and to pursue righteousness. So, Father, open up our eyes that we might behold wonderful things from your law. Incline our hearts to your testimonies and not to dishonest gain. Establish your word to your servants as that which produces reverence for thee. And, Father, we ask you to do it. In Jesus' name, amen. I got a phone call from Susan one day when she was about six months pregnant with Denny, our third born. And when I picked up the phone, I could, she was, I could tell she was crying, she was distressed. And she explained to me over the phone that she had had an accident and had fallen down our basement stairs. And it wasn't just a slight misstep or a slide. She was carrying these seat cushions down the stairs these stairs that she had been across countless times before that. But this time was different because not only was she carrying these cushions that kept her from seeing her footing as she was going down the stairs, but our one-year-old at that time, Abby, had left a toy ball on the steps. And so when Susan stepped on it, her feet came completely out from under her, and she just hit the stairs hard and then just went the rest of the way down. And so she was in a, a great deal of pain by the time she had called me, but that's not why she was crying. She was crying because she was six months pregnant with Denny, and she was thinking the same thing that I was thinking, is, is the baby okay? And so I was on an outing with Emily and, uh, when Susan called, and we immediately came home, and when we got there, Susan was laying on the couch, still in great distress, and the on-call doctor said that we definitely needed to bring her to the emergency room. And so we did that, and we left our girls with family members, and we just sped towards the hospital. And, you know, I don't think I helped things by the way I drove to the hospital because I was driving and weaving in and out of traffic, and I was just breaking all kind of traffic laws trying to get her there quick. I was kind of hoping I would be pulled over by a policeman so he could escort us the rest of the way. So we were just very urgent by the time we got to labor and delivery at Baptist East, and they immediately put her in a room and began doing tests on her. And we were there for hours as they observed her and, and did tests on her. And we found out during that that she had fallen in just the way that you would want to fall, the safest way you would want to fall for somebody in her condition. So there was no bleeding, no contractions, no distress on the baby's part. Susan was in pain, but the baby was not in pain. And so um, the doctor ordered a final test to see, to, just to make sure everything was okay, everything was fine. Thanks be to God, the baby and Susan were, were safe. But as Susan and I sat in the hospital room, and it began to look like we were out of the woods, she began talking about the accident and about how she fell. And she was, she was kicking herself for going down the steps holding those cushions. And he, the thing you need to know about Susan is she's the most conscientious 
pregnant person I've ever known. So she was just kicking herself about this. And she's, she's never careless during pregnancies. And there was this renewed awareness as we were talking about what's at stake every single time that she takes a step. And in particular, when she walks on stairs, she is carrying our little boy. She was then. And every step she takes is, is crucial because his life is at stake in her steps. And while we were sitting there in the hospital, she looked at me and she had this kind of a steely resolve in her face. And she said, I will never walk on stairs again without being able to see my footing and without holding onto the rail. And in essence, she was saying to me, from now on, I will take heed lest I fall. That's what she was saying. I wonder how many of you have a steely resolve to watch your steps. Now, of course, I'm not talking about your literal walking. I'm talking about the daily reality of your life. How many of you are aware of what is at stake every single time you take a step, every decision that you make? As you tread the familiar paths of your everyday life and you encounter temptations, how many of you are really thinking about the fact that every step you take can either be a safe one or potentially a fatal one spiritually? That flirty coworker, your all-consuming career, a kind of a desire for advancement and more money, your life online, how many of you have ever considered, for example, what's at stake every time you go online? It's familiar territory, but every time you get on, it could be harmless or it could be the first step in a marriage-wrecking, soul-destroying addiction that leads to death. Do you tremble that your own sin might take you further down and deeper in than you ever thought that you would go? How many of you think the way that Jesus was thinking when he said, Enter through the narrow gate, for wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to destruction. And many enter through it, but small is the gate and narrow the road that leads to life, and only a few find it. Every step that you take will either be a step down the broad road to judgment or down the narrow road that leads to life. Some of you think that your footing is secure simply because you work and are walking in familiar paths. And so perhaps you've gotten to the point where the daily grind distracts you from daily dangers. You show up to work day after day, you come to church week after week, and you hardly even think about the myriad ways that the devil and your own flesh are conspiring to destroy you. You're not taking heed, and therefore you are becoming ripe for a fall. If you haven't already, I want you to open your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. And we're going to be looking at verses 1 to 13. 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and verses 1 to 13. The title of the sermon is taken directly from verse 12. Let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. And the question is, what were the Corinthians in danger of falling into as Paul was writing to them? 
Well, it's clear we saw in chapter 8 that some of the Corinthian believers were eating meals in pagan temples. They were reasoning that it was no big deal to do that because a pagan temple in their mind was like going to the civic center. It was a morally indifferent thing. It's a place where people gather to meet and greet. And these guys who were going to the temple were thinking, I'm standing strong here. And in the knowledge that there's no such thing as idols in the world, so it doesn't really matter if I eat in an idol's temple. There's no God but one. They didn't think they had to worry about food sacrifice to idols because false gods can't pose real threats. Paul tells them that there is more to it than that. And in chapters 8 through 9, he tells them that eating in a pagan temple puts other people's souls at risk. But here in chapter 10, he tells them that they are putting their own souls at risk. They don't realize that they are in spiritual danger by what they are doing in eating this food sacrificed to idols in the temple precincts. And so Paul has to basically tell them to beware of what they're doing. And so there's three beware statements here from Paul that we're going to focus on. Paul's going to say, essentially, beware of your privileges in verses 1 through 5. He says, beware of your desires in verses 6 through 11. And then he says, beware of your strength in verses 12 to 13. So beware of your privileges, beware of your desires, and beware of your strength. But the first thing is beware of your privileges. Look at verse 1. For I do not want you to be unaware, brethren. Now hold on right there. Notice that the first word of verse 10 is that little word for, which means that this entire passage is a, is a ground of the last passage. It's the foundation or explanation for what came in chapter 9. And you'll remember at the end of chapter 9, Paul says this, I buffet my body and make it my slave, lest possibly after I have preached to others, I myself should be disqualified. Paul's saying that he exercises self-control and self-discipline in his life so he won't be disqualified. Some of your translations say so he won't be unapproved. And it's the same word that Paul uses in 2 Corinthians chapter 13 and verse 5. You remember this passage where Paul says, test yourselves to see if you're in the faith. Examine yourselves or do you not recognize this about yourselves that Jesus Christ is in you unless indeed you fail the test. Or you might render it, unless indeed you are unapproved. It's the same word that we have here in 1 Corinthians 9. When Paul talks about being disqualified or unapproved, he's talking about falling away from the faith altogether. He is actually holding out the possibility that after preaching the gospel to others and after being numbered among the people of God, he himself might be shown to be an imposter by turning away from Christ. Does it surprise you that Paul might talk that way about his own faith? Is it kind of unsettling when you apply that logic to your own situation? That you might one day be disqualified? Um, some people hear that and it makes them want to object. Hey, you know, I, I'm a baptized member of the church. I can't be unapproved or be disqualified after that. Once saved, always saved, right? Well, Paul's anticipating that objection in verses 1 through 5. 
And he's, draw, he's going to draw examples from the Old Testament to show that that objection fails. He points to the people who were also numbered among the people of God, who apparently were redeemed by God, but who nevertheless ended up being judged by God. We have more in common with the Exodus generation than we like to admit. And in fact, verses 1 through 5 say that they have two of the same privileges, in a sense, that we have today. They had baptism and they had spiritual food. We have baptism and we have spiritual food. But they, some of them at least, fell and became unapproved in the wilderness. So look at verse 1 again. For I do not want you to be unaware, brethren, that our fathers were all under the crowd, under the cloud, and all passed through the sea, and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. Now, we all know what being under the cloud was about. You'll remember from Exodus chapter 13, verse 21, it says that the Lord was going before them in a pillar of cloud by day to lead them on the way, and in a pillar of fire by night to give them light that they might travel by day and by night. I would argue that, among other things, the cloud signified God's presence among his people. They knew God's presence through the cloud and the fire. We know God's presence through the indwelling spirit. They had that privilege of God's presence, in a sense. We have the privilege of God's presence, in a sense. It says they passed through the sea. Passing through the sea obviously refers to God's miraculous work of dividing the sea so that the Israelites could walk through on dry land to salvation from the Egyptians. By following that cloud and going through that sea, they had walls of water on each side of them as they went through. The Israelites were baptized, as it were, into their leader, Moses. So it's in a sense they were baptized, right? In the same way, you and I, Christians, the Corinthians that Paul's writing to, Christians are baptized and experience God's presence among his people. They had those privileges, baptism, God's presence. We have those privileges. But look what he says here. Not just that we're baptized, but we all eat spiritual food. Look at verse 3. And all ate the same spiritual food. And all drank the same spiritual drink, for they were drinking from the spiritual rock which followed them, and the rock was Christ. Now, these verses have confused a lot of folks, but let's think about these for a moment. Eating spiritual food and drinking spiritual drink refers to God's providing manna for the children of Israel in the wilderness. The Bible says that God caused bread to come down out of heaven to feed his people. And that God caused water to come out of a rock to water his own people. As Mike read to us from Exodus chapter 17. That water coming from the rock happened on more than one occasion. But what is this? What is he talking about when he says this spiritual rock following them in the wilderness? It is interesting when you read in the book of Exodus that, that the rock is... Water bearing rock, a water-bearing rock is there more than once. Some people have looked in that and they thought, huh, is that rock following them around? Well, God's presence definitely was following them around. It may be that Paul's words here are the earliest reference to an old rabbinic tradition that says that the Israelites carried with them a well of water that's mentioned in Numbers chapter 21. 
Some people see that kind of reading as kind of fanciful and unlikely, um, the, an unlikely meaning of what Moses meant when he wrote Exodus or wrote the Pentateuch. They think it's really creative on Paul's part, but it's not really what the Old Testament actually means. I'm not really so sure about that. You know, later in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, Paul quotes from Deuteronomy 32, and Paul refers to God as rock five different times in Deuteronomy 32. Let me just read you an example of this. In Deuteronomy 32, 15, it says, But Israel grew fat and kicked. You are grown fat, thick, and sleek. Then he forsook God who made him and scorned the rock of his salvation. They made him jealous with strange gods, with abominations. They provoked him to anger. They sacrificed to demons who were not God. That's the part that's quoted in 1 Corinthians 10. To gods whom they have not known. New gods who came lately, whom your fathers did not dread. You neglected the rock who begot you and forgot the God who gave you birth. So here we have in Deuteronomy 32, where Paul quotes in, from this passage... And it's, God's called rock twice. When Paul says that Christ is the rock that followed them through the wilderness, he may simply be observing this connection. A rock provided life and water for his people, and Moses calls God rock five different times in reflecting upon God's actions during the Exodus. Whatever it is, Paul identifies the rock as a type of Christ. It's a reference to Christ's Spiritual presence among the Israelites, providing water for them. So that means that they had what? They had spiritual food and they had spiritual drink. Now Paul's saying, back at 1 Corinthians 10, that God has caused spiritual food to come out of heaven for us to eat. Jesus said that I am the living bread that came out of heaven. Also, we have spiritual drink. We partake of the Lord's Supper, which signifies these spiritual realities. They had spiritual food. We have spiritual food. They had baptism. We had baptism. You see what Paul's saying there? But here's the clincher. It's in verse 5. Even though they had all those privileges, we had those same privileges. Nevertheless, with them, most of them, God was not well pleased. For they were laid low in the wilderness. Now think about what that means. God led an entire generation to die in the wilderness because they would not trust him to take them to the promised land. All that after he had redeemed them from Egypt. What happened to those in the wilderness wanderings who turned away to, from God to idolatry? idolatry? God judged them. Even though, even though they had walked through the sea on dry land and watched God destroy the Egyptians. They had seen all that and experienced all that and still on the other side of that, they got judged. Now, Paul is not trying to say that a person can lose their salvation. That's not what Paul's saying here. All he's saying is that God's judgment shows that though they had, they had enjoyed external privileges of being a part of God's people, they had never experienced God. External spiritual privileges, baptism and the Lord's Supper in this case, do not deliver us from judgment if we choose to follow sin rather than Christ. That's the point Paul's getting at. And he's saying, if you're reading the Bible correctly, the Old Testament, you will see that just eating the spiritual food and 
being baptized, that's not going to save you if your heart is still going after your idols. You know, the night before Susan's fall down the stairs that I told you about, she actually had to go out for a while and left me at home with uh, the girls. There was only two of them at that time. And she was out running errands, and the girls were little, and I let them sit for a while in our bedroom on the bed and watch a video, and then I left the room for a few minutes. And for them, especially then, for the girls, it was a privilege to even be in our room, to be on our bed watching a video. There was an, it, was a, it was a privileged place. It was a good place. It's a secure place for them. Actually, it's the inner sanctum of safety to be in our, our room. But after a while, I was downstairs. I wasn't there very long. My, my three-year-old, Emily, came down the stairs crying and holding her head. I thought I'd just kiss it and make it better, but then I grabbed her head, and she's like gushing blood out from the back of her head. I looked, and her hair is all matted with blood from this wound. And I, I'm not sure exactly how she did it, but somehow... I think they must have been jumping on the bed or something. She fell off and she gashed her head on the corner of my night table. And so Susan comes home to see me holding Emily over the sink, trying to rinse out this, this wound and trying to wash the blood out. And Emily's crying hysterically. I'm sure she's thinking, I just left you here for like three minutes. What in the world is going on? Well, I ended up at the urgent care center with Emily after that. She had to have three stitches to, to staple up her head. But the point here is this. For Emily, our little girl at that time, there was no more safe or secure place than our bedroom. There probably isn't any other place more familiar either. There's no tricks in there. Nevertheless, her security and her familiarity on that bed is probably what made her most vulnerable on that bed as she drifted towards the edge and went over. It's really easy for us to be lulled into a false sense of security. There may be some area in your life in which you have experienced a great deal of progress over a certain sin. And you've had so much progress over that certain sin that you no longer are vigilant against that particular sin. And it's your comfort and your secure feeling that are opening you up for a fall. Maybe it's not a sin that you once struggled with. Maybe you are feeling secure because it's a sin that you've never struggled with. And so you're flirting with boundaries and temptations that you shouldn't be flirting with just because you've never gone there before. And you think, well, I'm not going to go there now. And so you don't see any reason for vigilance. Yes, you may be a member of a great church. You may be going to small group. You may be deeply invested in the life of this church. You may, in other words, have great spiritual privileges. But here's the thing. None of those privileges exempt you from judgment if you choose to walk away from Jesus. Just participating externally in the life of things here don't exempt you from judgment if you walk away from him. God's word says in 1 John, those who went out from us, went out from us to show that they were not really of us. You aren't showing, you're not losing your salvation, you're showing that you never had it. If God's people who walked through the sea with walls of water on each side, if they went through and they were not immune to falling into judgment, then we're not immune either. That's what Paul's trying to say here. 
He's trying to, to, to inculcate vigilance into God's people. You have got to hate sin. You have got to run away from sin and from idolatry. So he says, beware of your privileges. Because your privileges, these external things, aren't what save you. So he says, beware of your privileges. But he also says, beware of your desires. Look at verse 6. Now, as you look at verse 6, I want you to notice something. There's this, this little middle section, verses 6 through 11, has bookends. The first part of the bookend is verse 6. The second part of the bookend is verse 11. They, these bookends tell us why God's judgments came down on his people in the Old Testament. And the verses in the middle allude to four different stories from the Old Testament. So, But I, I want us to look at the bookends first, so verses 6 and 11. Look what he says in verse 6. Now these things happened as examples for us that we should not crave evil things as they also craved. Then look at verse 11. Now these things happened to them as an example and they were written for our instruction upon whom the ends of the ages have come. Paul says God judged his people's disobedience as an example for us, which by the way, parenthetically, what does that say about God's sovereignty and his revelation in Scripture to us? Those things were written in the Old Testament for us, Christians, Gentiles. But he says God did this. He did this as an example for us. In this case, the example is negative. This is what we are not supposed to do. He says that we should not crave evil things. Or it means that we should not desire evil things things. So Paul's exhortation is not aimed, first of all, at their deeds, but at their heart. The reason for this is really simple. If you crave evil, then you will do evil. If you crave righteousness, then you will do righteousness. If God has your heart, then he has you. If he doesn't have your heart, then he doesn't have you. No matter how many of his rules you follow, or no matter how many church services you go to, or how many communion services you go through the motions on, if he doesn't have your heart, he doesn't have you. This is the way that Jesus himself taught. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornications, thefts, false witness, slanders. These are the things which defile the man. So here, here the exhortation from Paul. He's saying, beware of your heart. Beware of your desires. The Bible says that the wise man knows himself well enough to know that he is a sinner in his heart. And so you have to beware of what's in your heart. Paul tells us to beware of four different temptations that threaten to, to overtake our hearts. And the first one is in verse 7. And all of these are examples from the Old Testament, right? So... Four different temptations here. The first one is idolatry. And do not be idolaters as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and stood up to play. Now that's obviously a reference to Exodus 32.6 and the incident with the golden calf after they came out of Egypt or in the wilderness. And the people get impatient waiting for Moses to come down from the mountain. So Aaron makes an idol for them and God pronounces judgment on them and about 3,000 Israelites fall at the tip of the sword under God's judgment because they bowed down to this golden calf. But notice this connection to the issue that Paul's addressing in Corinth. Okay, the Israelites, what did they do? It says, 
the people sat down to eat and drink and stood up to play. It's, it's saying that the Israelites sat down to eat and drink in celebration of an idol. What are these Corinthians doing, according to chapter 8? They're sitting down to eat and drink in an idol's temple. The Corinthians are doing the same things that the, in, the, the, the Israelites did. The second warning here is against idolatry. Look at verse 8. Nor let us act, or excuse me, against immorality. Nor let us act immorally as some of them did, and 23,000 fell in one day. Now that's an allusion to Numbers 25, 1 to 9, in which the Israelites committed immorality with Moabite women and got mixed up in idolatry in the process. God sent a plague that killed 23,000 people as a result. And that plague ended when the priest, the priest, Phineas, ran a spear through a man and a woman who were caught in the act. He just killed them as an act of judgment from God. Now, he's warning them against idolatry. Now he's warning the Corinthians against sexual immorality. From what we know about what's going on in Corinth, are the Corinthians having any problems with sexual immorality? Yes, they are. Your privileges aren't going to save you if you choose to abandon Christ by pursuing your sexual immorality. Testing the Lord is the third thing. Look at verse 9. Nor let us try the Lord as some of them did and were destroyed by the serpents. That's obviously an allusion to Numbers 21, verses 4 to 9, where the story of the bronze serpent, after the people had complained against God and Moses that they would die in the wilderness for lack of food and water, God caused these poisonous serpents to come into the camp and to kill the people. And when the people asked God for mercy, God told Moses to put a bronze serpent up on a standard. And after being bitten, the people would be healed when they looked at that, that serpent. But they were being judged for testing the Lord. The last thing is grumbling in verse 10. Nor grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now, this allusion is a little more vague than the others. But I think it's talking about um, what happened as a result of Numbers chapter 14. When the children of Israel got the reports from the spies about whether or not they should go into the land, and they refused to go. And the result of their not going into the land is that they were destroyed by the destroyer, which I think is talking about the fact that an entire generation went to their death in the wilderness for not trusting God to take the land. So look at this. Paul's warning, saying, don't be like them, right? Watch your desires. Don't crave the things they crave. What did they crave? Idolatry, sexual immorality, testing the Lord, grumbling. Don't be like them. These things happen to them for you so that you wouldn't do that. In every one of those instances, the people sinned in their desires long before they sinned with their deeds. Paul is saying that if you are going to stay faithful to Christ, you have to be vigilant over your desires first. Don't crave what they craved. You know, this is how sin has operated from the very beginning. Do you remember how Eve responded to the serpent's temptation in the garden? It says in Genesis 3, 6, when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was desirable to make one wise, she took from its fruit and ate and she gave also to her husband with her and he ate. So what happened here? She looked at the sin, 
She delighted in the sin. She desired the sin. And then she did the sin. But where did the sin start? Did it start in her eating or in her desiring? You know where it started. It started in her desiring. If you're going to understand where your sin starts, you've got to understand it starts right here. And if all you're doing is focusing on external behavioral, mod behavioral modification and there's nothing changing here, then nothing's changing at all. James says it this way, but each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. And when sin is fully grown, it brings forth death. The, this connection between desire and deed is so clear in Scripture. And it, it has to be clear in our own thinking as well. Sinful deeds come from sinful desires. So if you want to be faithful, you have to be vigilant over your desires. Remember, if God doesn't have your heart, he doesn't have you. These warnings of judgment are for, for all of us to turn our hearts away from craving evil. You're desperately dependent upon God to sustain you in this. All of us are. But that's actually not something that we can do for ourselves, which is why Paul says what he says in the last part of this passage in verses 12 to 13. So he says, beware of your privileges, beware of your desires. But then he says this, beware of your strength. And I think he says that because you and I are not as strong as we sometimes think we are. So look at, look at verse 12. Therefore, let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. Now, therefore means because many people were numbered among the people of God who were numbered among the people of God fell into sin and judgment in the Exodus. Therefore, because that happened to them, therefore you need to take heed as well. It means if they did what they did, having seen what they saw and they still sin, then so can you. Beware. It means be vigilant over your own soul or you might lose it. He's saying that the moment you begin to coast and to feel strong and invulnerable is the point that you become most vulnerable. And notice that the admonition focuses not on what people know to be sin, but on things that people might have convinced themselves are not sin. Those people who are standing firm are those people who are doing what they do with a good conscience. Which means those Corinthians who were going into the idol's temple and eating, they thought this was fine, right? Isn't that what we learned in chapter 8? They thought they were just fine going in there. No sin involved. They were standing firm when they went in. No problem, no pangs of conscience. But notice that the warning still stands. Even if you don't know it's wrong, it's still wrong. And will lead to judgment. Which means that we have to constantly guard ourselves, not just against known sins, but also against those things which we have let ourselves become callous to. And have perhaps through some sinful ingenuity, have convinced ourselves is not sin. We can't get ourselves off the hook because of our own error. That's the point Paul's making. Look what he says, though, in verse 13. Be careful when you stand firm, lest you fall. But then he says this in verse 13. No temptation has overtaken you, but such as is common to man. 
And God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation will provide the way of escape also, that you may be able to endure it. I think there's so much comfort in what Paul is saying here. First, he's saying that there's, there's no unprecedented temptation in the world. There's just not. Countless other people before you have walked through the same temptations that you're walking through. And none of those temptations are a surprise to God. So you may feel uniquely pinched by temptation, but you are not. But the second thing he says is, God is faithful not to let you have more than you can handle. But he will always make a path of faithfulness for you. If you are willing to turn away from sin, God will make the pathway out of that sin clear. There will be a way of escape. That does not mean that there will always be a painless way of escape. Sometimes the way of escape from sin involves suffering. Righteousness sometimes brings suffering, but there will be a way of escape. What does that mean? It means that if you sin, it's all on you. But if you stay faithful, it's all on God. Because God made the way of escape. This is a very God-centered way to think about temptations, isn't it? It is a way to face temptations realizing that your escape is coming from God every time. Which means you're dependent upon God in every single temptation. None of them are you self-reliant. You're constantly God-reliant. The same gospel of Jesus Christ that saved you also sustains you. Jesus purchased not only your forgiveness and eternal life, but also the spirit that indwells you and his own providential care that enables you to say no to sin. That's what it means. Several days after Susan fell down those stairs, I was about to run down the very same stairs that Susan had fallen down. And I flipped on the light switch to that stairway into the basement, and the light went out. So it's pitch black looking down there. And I looked down the steps. I thought, no problem. I've been down these steps 100 times. I'm not pregnant. Um, I'll just run right down. I don't even have to finish the story, right? Um, you know what happened next. My, I, I lost my footing going down those very same stairs like a week later. And I landed so hard on my back and hit my head back on the step and made such a cacophony going down those stairs and I slid down hard it was so loud Susan heard me two flights up and came running down to find out what had happened now here's the thing it was when I became most confident that I became most vulnerable I thought I didn't have any of the drawbacks that Susan had when she was going down and so I thought I was just fine but I was not fine and that's just it. Self-confidence and self-reliance are deadly for the Christian. And they're deadly for you. Don't be proud. You are not as strong as you think you are, but God is. God will provide the way of escape when you need it. And God will provide the power that you need to take the way of escape when you need it. But you won't be able to take the way of escape if you aren't looking for it. 
which is why he's commanding us, take heed lest you fall. So you beware of your privileges and beware of your desires and beware of your strength. And let me say two final things just in terms of application as you're thinking about this. How do I beware of all those things faithfully? Well, number one, just consider what's at stake in the pursuit of holiness. You know, the scripture says in Hebrews, without holiness, no one will see the Lord. And you and I will not be the exceptions to that. We flee from sin because we love God's holiness. And if we're not going towards God's holiness, we're not going towards God. So you need to consider what's at stake in the pursuit of holiness. And you need to set your mind and your heart towards that pursuit and the power of God. Second thing I would say is this. When it comes to facing temptations, don't just say no. I mean, you have to say no, okay? But don't just say no. Just say no is a good slogan for an anti-drug campaign, but it's a bad strategy for holiness. Our strategy to beware of our privileges and our desires and our strengths will not work if it's merely an ethic of deprivation. If you want to cut at the root of cravings for evil, you have to learn how to crave other things in their place. You have to learn what Thomas Chalmers called the expulsive power of a new affection. You not only have to take your heart off your idols, you have to set your heart on something that will keep the demons away. Chalmers put it this way in that famous sermon. He said, the best way of casting out an impure affection is to admit a pure one. And by the love of what is good to expel the love of what is evil. What that means is that you have to take Christ, make Christ and his gospel the chief treasure of your life. You have to have a, a whole new love, replacing the old loves that you forsook from your old life. You have to be cultivating that love in the power of God. Paul said it this way in Philippians 3, but whatever to was my to was, was to my prophet, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them rubbish that I may gain Christ. You have to look at all of those other cravings that you have for evil things and see them as nothing compared to having Christ. Father, I pray that you would awaken this kind of affection for Christ in our hearts, the kind that drives out evil desires. And Father, I pray you would do it daily and you would sustain it within us. Father, that you would keep your servants back from presumptuous sins, that you would not let them rule over us, but that you would help us to walk wisely, to take heed lest we fall. Father, we are putting all of our hope in you and in your gospel because you have loved us first. So we pray and ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.